And uh, I also can't thank all of you uh, enough for this year. It has been uh, an amazing ride. And if you're a visitor uh, this Sunday, I just got to tell you that uh, you're at a special place. And uh, uh, we've got an amazing group of people. And also, if you're a visitor at the end, we set up chairs and tables. And, uh, and so we'd love for you to join us do that too. So anyway, that's, uh, that's all part of the West Side deal. Let's have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, it is uh, amazing to be here. And uh, Lord, it's, uh, it is hard to imagine a year ago as we opened up uh, with uh, a disco ball and uh, prayer in a bar and all the things uh, that went into this room. Uh, but Lord, really, it has become home. And so I thank you for everyone who has just committed endless and countless hours to make this happen. And Lord, everything we do, we do to bring glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles here this morning, I'd love for you to turn over to 1 Kings over in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 19. And we're going to continue in our series. And the series is on this Old Testament prophet, and his name is Elijah. And uh, we're going to talk about Elijah alone in this world and what that means. Uh, and this is an interesting message as we talk about isolation and depression uh, and happy anniversary. So, I mean, I know you look at that, but I got to be honest, this really does apply. Uh, one of the things that came through in the video uh, that somebody shared, and I think it was Tony, is that this is a place for broken people. This is a place where we hope when you come in, we really mean this, that we want you to come as you are. And uh, we believe that with everything that we are. Because at the end of the day, if we're honest, we're all messed up. Amen? If you don't think you're messed up, you're messed up because we are all messed up. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we live in an amazing world today. Uh, how many of you sent at least 10 text messages this week? Raise your hand. At least 10. Okay, good. That's most of you. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, but the world of texting now has exploded to the point that there is a texting dictionary. So there's a lot of codes for texting, and you got to be careful if you don't know what any of these are. So we're going to teach you some of those if you don't know any of them. So you're going to be hip. After today, you're going to be hip, okay? Here's the first one. We're going to bring these up. Know what that is? First one is Starbucks. So there you go. Meet you at Starbucks, okay? Everybody knows what LOL is. is... Now, A-L-O-L is actually laughing out loud, okay? D-D-A-S. Anybody know? Don't do anything stupid, okay? That's a good one. Y-Y-S-S-W. Anybody know that one? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, okay? J-L-Y-A-T-M. Just loving you in the moment. Ah, that one's really lame. Okay. Um, I love this one. J-W-T-T-S-A-Y. Just wanting to throw something at you, okay? That's a good one. But I've made up a new one, okay? So I don't know how I turn this in to get a patent on it, but here's mine, L-B-M-V. Anybody want to guess what that means? L-B-M-V, life before minivans, okay? Does anybody remember life before minivans? Let me show a picture of what life was like when I was a kid before minivans. There it is. How many of you? How many have ever rode in one of those bad boys? Yeah. Yeah. Brian Regan, the comedian, and he's absolutely right. Uh, we did not own uh, the vacation here, uh, minivan, or excuse me, the station wagon 
Uh, but I rode in so many over my lifetime because all my buddies and their families, they had station wagons. But you know, the greatest seat in the station wagon was what seat? Anybody? Why was the back seat amazing? Because it was turned the other way. So you had a totally different experience than anybody else in the station wagon, okay? And so my first memory of a station wagon was uh, my nephews came down. I've shared with you before. I'm the youngest of seven. So I have ne a nephew older than me. So that's how weird my family is. So my nephews were more like first cousins. And so uh, they came down and, and my sister and brother-in-law and we uh, met there in the St. Louis area to drive all the way out to my brother-in-law's folks in West Virginia. Have you ever been to West Virginia? A little different than Indiana, would you admit? Okay, so as we're going along, I'm so excited. I'm like, I've never seen a mountain before. I cannot wait to see the mountains. And so uh, we're getting close to the mountains. And my brother-in-law, for some reason, said, uh, Johnny, um, you sure you want to ride in that seat? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's the best seat in the... And he said, okay, eat this huge lunch, going up the mountain. Now, if you've been to West Virginia, you know you're going to, get a, you're going to hit a point when there's not a straight road in West Virginia. Okay, up the mountain, not bad, feeling a little queasy, but I'm like, suck it up. Then we started down the mountain. And uh, I think I was trying to say, stop the car, but I didn't even get stop out. And I don't know if you saw the movie Stand Alone, but it was a regular barfarama. I mean, my poor nephew, he still hasn't talked to me. I mean, it was bad. And some of you can relate to car sickness. Some of you can relate to your kid's car sickness. But I learned a valuable lesson that day. Not just don't ride in that seat in West Virginia, but what I learned was, you know, there's life going up a mountain, but there's a whole nother life when you're coming down a mountain. And that's what we're going to find out about Elijah. He had this amazing life and this mountaintop experience, but in chapter 19, he's coming down off of this mountain, and he's going into a valley, and it was more than just making him nauseous. It threw him into a darkness that he actually wanted to take his life, and that's what we're going to get into today. Just so that you can understand clearly where we're headed with this, I wanted to go back and give a quick summary from last week so that this week makes sense. If you remember last week, God's prophet Elijah, after a three-year drought, uh, was going to pay Ahab a visit. On his way, he encounters, you remember, Obadiah. Obadiah, who was there in the council of Ahab, uh, took the word back to Ahab that Elijah was coming, which meant God was coming. And when he showed up, Ahab thought that he had outsmarted Elijah, so he sent 450 prophets of Baal, and had the nation of Israel meet Elijah at Mount Carmel. And then what's amazing is the battle took place. Elijah and God versus 450 prophets of Baal. And with those odds, God will win every time. God wins every time. It was the ultimate mountaintop experience. But there was one player that wasn't at the big game. Anybody know? Jezebel. You go back through and you read that, you realize Ahab had called her prophets, but he didn't tell Jezebel. That's not a smart move, to not tell your wife something like that. And if your wife is Jezebel, you better have your neck on a swivel. You know what I'm saying? This is a dangerous, dangerous woman. This is a strong-willed woman. 
I'll tell you what she reminds me of. It's uh, from the quote, the big fat Greek wedding. Anybody seen that? So you may enjoy this. A man may be the head of the house, but a woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any time she wants. Can I have an amen? Yeah, look at the guys. Amen. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about Elijah. And what we're really going to talk about is what I would call the don'ts and the do's when it comes to facing the blues. Now, what do I mean when I say the blues? It's interesting if you were to study the music, the blues, because the blues actually started jazz. Uh, the roots from the blues all actually went through jazz to even rock and roll. The blues are amazing. So I want you to know briefly what that means when we say the blues. The blues is an African-American music that traverses a wide range of emotions and musical styles. If you're feeling blue, it's expressed in songs whose values lament injustice. They express a longing for a better life, lost loves, lost jobs, and money. But the blues are also a raucous dance music that celebrate victory and success. You see, central to the idea of the blues performance is this concept. By performing or listening to the blues, one is able to overcome sadness and loss of the blues. In other words, what made the blues work is you lamented that life was hard. And we would all admit life is hard. But then the blues would always communicate this message. It's going to get better. It will get better. Blues performer Leon Redbone said this, the blues ain't nothing but a good man feeling bad. That's the blues. But it's a pretty serious matter. Some of you this morning are going through the blues. Some of you had a hard time getting here. So let me just share for those of you that are struggling, those of you that have family members that are struggling, friends that are struggling, that there are some things Elijah teaches us on how not to handle despair and depression. Here's the first thing. Don't underestimate life after the parade. Now, what do I mean by that? Don't underestimate life after the parade. Can you imagine Elijah with these prophets of Baal that God has just brought down the thunder and he has just destroyed them with fire? And can you imagine then as he sends again this servant out seven times? To me, again, I think he's building. He's building. He's building and finally says, oh, it hasn't rained for three years. Guess what? You better get your umbrella. It is going to rain. And did it ever rain? Now, I don't care who you are. Can you imagine that night trying to sleep? Can you imagine as he laid his head on the pillow and he knew God had used him in a way he couldn't even comprehend? It was a mountaintop experience like we can't even describe. I guarantee everybody in this room, you've had a mountaintop experience. You've had a time when God was so amazing that you could barely breathe. You've had moments in your life that God has broke you and you, you just you can't even put in words how God showed up. But what do we know about mountaintop experiences? They don't last long. And here's the other thing, and I can just share this from my own life. I know when I've had a, an amazing spiritual mountaintop experience that those days and weeks to follow are many times really difficult weeks. And i got to be honest, I think Satan comes at you with both barrels after you've reached this really incredible spiritual experience. 
And I believe that's what's happened here. Emotionally and spiritually, Elijah is just spent. And all of a sudden, he gets word. And the word was, somebody wants your life. Jezebel is coming after you. And he began to realize that most of life is not lived on the mountain. It's actually lived in the valley. Does that sound familiar? If you were to turn over to Matthew chapter 17, you'd find a story many of you have heard. And it's a story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they climb a mountain. They call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they get to the top of the mountain, interestingly enough, who's on the mountain? Anybody remember? Moses and Elijah. Now, how would you respond if you climb a mountain with Jesus and there's Moses and Elijah? It's not going to get any better than that. Now, I know some of you would be like, well, maybe if there was, you know, Johnny Bench and Pete Rowe or, you know, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. No, no, no. Think about Elijah and Moses. So to me, Peter responds like most of us would respond. He starts building shelters. Jesus is like, what are you doing? He's like, why would we do anything other than just live here on this mountain? I mean, this is great. This is where we want to stay. And don't you think Jesus would have loved to live the rest of his days on the mountain? But that's not where life is lived. The life is lived on the other side of the mountain. We spend a lot more time in the valleys than we do on the mountaintops. And so Elijah is teaching all of us a valuable, valuable lesson. Matter of fact, turn over to 1 Kings 19 and look at verses 1 through 3. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, Elijah, just so you know, you are a dead man. I could care less if your God, see, she still didn't get it. I could care less if your gods come after me. You're a dead man. And so Elijah responded like many of us. And he made a terrible, terrible mistake. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. That's a huge don't do that when you're going through a difficult time. When you're going through a really hard time, the last thing you need to be is alone. Isolation is never the answer. Genesis 2.18 is a powerful little verse, and it simply says, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. And yet, i got to be honest, in the ministry, I've seen a lot of folks, and there's been times in my life when I'm like, I just don't want to be around people. Can you believe that as a minister, that there are times you don't want to be around people? Trust me, there are times you don't want to be around people, you know, but you also also need to know that you need to be around people. And when you're going through a really difficult time, there needs to be special people that you invest in, that will invest in you. And I call these 2 a.m. friends. We all need 2 a.m. friends. That friend that you can call at 2 a.m. and just say, I can't, I can't talk a lot, but I just, I need you to come over. I'm going to come over there. And we all need those kind of friends. You And I need to be 2 a.m. friends. Charles Swindoll, years ago, I remember reading about the great western frontier. And 
You know what happened was in the, the city, as everybody started pouring into the states, a lot of those would set up shop in these huge cities. And when the West opened up and the Louisiana uh, Treaty was signed, a uh, purchase was signed, people started heading west and they couldn't wait to buy land and to get away from people. Imagine, they've been in a crowded situation. And so here's the strategy in the early West. People would buy these huge blocks of land and they would put their little home right in the middle of their land. The problem was they were buying so much land that they were literally isolated. In other words, they put their house in the middle and then they may not see another human being for weeks. And they thought that was great. So the president and the government actually sent out a, a group of photographers to take pictures of the great, amazing West. And when the pictures came back, they're like, wow, they are crazy. I mean, it looked like little five weekend. I mean, it was just every, every picture is like, what is wrong with these people? And they're like, well, they've been in isolation. I mean, it was scary taking the pictures. So they said, we need to put a strategy together. Anybody want to guess what the strategy was? Move your houses to the corner of your properties. Start to find and build communities and villages because you need one another. Has that changed? Absolutely not. We need each other. We need community. That's one of the most important things that we do here on the West Side. We really believe that. When you come in those doors, we really want you to feel like this is a home for you. That if you're battling and you're struggling with loneliness, we don't want you to feel lonely. We want you to feel at home. Because loneliness is real, even with social media. Depression is real. I was reading some statistics I wanted to share with you because they're alarming on depression. And depression is, it's almost a feeling of being helpless and hopeless. 10% of all Americans now have been diagnosed with serious depression. And of those, 80% will not seek professional help. And what's interesting is if they would seek professional help, 80% of those within uh, four to six weeks will get better. But it's really difficult to admit that you're battling depression. Now, here's the other thing that I want to share, and that is chemical depression. One of the things that I'm glad over the years that I've heard, and I remember Tom a few years ago shared the same thing, is... Um, First of all, the church for years, and I'm talking about Sherwood Oaks, in general, the church didn't talk a lot about depression. Or they, they sugarcoated depression, like, just read this verse, just do this. Just, listen, it's, it's not that easy. And when you're in depression, honestly, the first thing is you just need help. We all need help. If you need a doctor and you're physically hurting, what do you do? You go to the doctor. And if you're battling emotionally, you need to realize that it's okay to ask for help. I want to share that because it's a very real, real thing that is going on today. A few years ago, I was at church camp, and uh, I started getting cramps, really bad stomach. And I, I, ha I, I really thought I'd had some really bad fish, to be honest. I, I still don't eat fish. Well. But anyway, and I kept saying, anybody, anybody else getting sick? That fish was terrible. You know, I kept going on. And about 3, 4 in the afternoon, actually, the coach from uh, my college was there, and uh, I said, hey, coach, man I, man, I am really, and so he said, sit on the bed, you know, and he started thumping on my stomach, and he goes, I think that's your appendix. I'm like, so what does that mean? He goes, I think you probably need to go to the hospital. 
I'm like, oh, no, no, no. It's, it was bad fish, you know. And, I, you know, two, three more hours, and I remember being, like, bent all the way over, and I remember Tom driving me to the hospital. Now, on the way to the hospital, what if I just said, you know what? I think some Tums and Pepto-Bismol will take care of it. I was way beyond Tums and Pepto-Bismol. I needed help. And if you're battling any kind of depression, don't wait until you're in agony. Seek help. And trust me, we'll do everything that we can to help. There's an interesting picture that uh, came out, was painted in 1942. It's called Nighthawks. It's painted by Edgar Hooper. And maybe some of you remember this famous picture. Very simple, but yet it just took off. Why was that picture so famous? Matter of fact, you've seen remakes of it, I guarantee. I've seen pictures with Marilyn Monroe in there and Elvis in there. I mean, they put all kinds of movie stars in there. But here's why that, that picture, to me, landed so deeply into the consciousness of America. Because what it demonstrates is you can be lonely in the heart of a city surrounded by millions of people. All of us can. You can be in a room full of people, and you can be lonely. You may cover it up well, but that doesn't mean a thing. You're still hurting. And that's why we need each other. 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8, tells us something else about going through the blues. Don't fill your mind with past failures and comparisons to others. Let's pick this back up in verse 4. He says this, And while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a, a broom bush. He sat down under it, and he, he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Just take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. You see what's going on there? He's exhausted. He's given everything he's got. And he keeps thinking about uh, this Jezebel is hunting me down. And finally he says, Lord, just seriously, just take my life. I mean, and Lord, let's be honest. If I look back at my ancestors, I'm not as good as they are. Now, let's be honest. The ancestors he's talking about, Moses, David, that's pretty tough to compete with. But God didn't want him to compete with them. God only wanted him to be obedient to what he could do. That's what he wants from all of us. And when we start comparing ourselves to others, it never works. It never ends well. Can I be honest? I want to share with you one of the most insecure group of people in the world. Are you ready for this? Preachers. Preachers. I'm just fessing straight up. We are very insecure. You're like, oh, no, you're not. Yeah, we are. Listen, I've been around in my whole life. Do you know how we show our insecurity? There's this little thing called church attendance. And you know what preachers talk about when they get with other preachers? They're church attendance. And I know you're thinking, they're not that shallow. Yeah, we are. I mean, now we cover it up. You know, how's it going? Oh, oh, the Lord has blessed us. Attendance is up, you know. How's it going? Oh, God's pruning. Attendance is down. You know, we have code, but what are we doing? And honestly, it's not a good thing. How about some of you? How's that working for you when you compare yourself with your brothers or sisters? How's that working? How's it work when you compare yourself with others at work? Does that end well? When you start comparing yourself to others, 
to either build yourself up or actually begin tearing yourself down. That's not where God wants us to be. That's not where he wanted Elijah to be. He wanted Elijah to know, I'm using you. You don't need to think about others. You just think about what I can do through you. But look at verse 5 through 8. I love what God does. Absolutely love this. It says, Then they laid down under the bush tree, and he fell asleep. At once the angel touched him, and he said, Get up and eat. And he looked around there by his head, and there was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate it, he drank, and then he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time. He touched him and he said, get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horab, the mountain of God. What did God do for him? He have him. He, he gave him some food and he said, Dude, take a nap. Take a second nap. I love this quote, and if you agree with it, would you say amen? You know you're a grown-up when a nap is no longer punishment, but a reward. Amen? Hey, am I the only one that Sunday afternoon takes a nap? Am I the only one? I don't think so. Okay. We love them. Now, why do we love them? Because your body just gets run down. It's like all of a sudden it's like, you know, I just need to take a nap. Uh, my wife gets embarrassed because I can take a nap anywhere. Seriously, I could go nap on that grill outside. I really, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. But I got to tell you, sometimes when people are going through difficult times and, and they're in despair or depression and they try so many things and you'd be surprised with a good healthy meal and a good night's sleep, honestly, will do. It's like we don't want to give ourselves permission to do that. And yet, isn't that interesting? Of all the things God did, he did the most basic thing. Just eat healthy. And it's interesting. And take a nap. And it was almost saying, it was like, no, why don't you take another nap? Why don't you realize that I want to take care of you? And then he went on his journey. You see, God will do anything to get our attention. Matter of fact, in just a moment here, we're going to show uh, something that I think is so powerful, and that is when you're going through the storms in life, uh, how does God get your attention? That's a question all of us need to wrestle with because he knows us so personally that he will get your attention. Even when you're so deep in the valley, you don't think God hears you. When you cry out into the night, he hears you, and he loves you, and he will get your attention attention. One of the most powerful stories in the entire scripture picks up here in 1 Kings 19. Verse 11 says, the Lord said, I want you to go out and I want you to stand on a mountain in the presence of the Lord and the Lord is about to pass by. And there was a great and powerful wind and it tore the mountains apart and it shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And when we're going through hard times and we're angry at God or we're struggling with God, we are, we're saying, God, would you just show up and show up in a big way? And have you noticed so many times that's not how God shows up? So how does he show up? 
And after the fire came a what? Gentle whisper. In John 10, 27, is a powerful verse. We're going to bring it up here, and I'd like us to read it together. My sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know why that's so hard? Because we live in a world of noise. We live in a world of distraction. And God's trying to get our attention. And when you're really down, and I know when I'm down, it's not normally the mountaintops that pull me out of the hard times. It's this gentle voice of God, this tug, this awareness. And I, can't, I cannot explain it, and you can't either. But I guarantee he's done that, hasn't he? And he works in countless ways with that gentle whisper. He's with us. We know he's with us. He tells us in his word that it is a peace beyond understanding. He's with us. That gentle voice can change your life. David Osberger said this, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indisquishable. In other words, he's saying, if you listen so intently to God, that's where the power is. But are you listening? Are you so focused that you're listening to the whisper of God? Because he wants, he wants to help you and he wants to heal you. For some of you that are battling right now, He's reaching out to you through a gentle voice, just saying, I am with you. Years ago, I read this story, and it, it reminded me so much of today and talking about Elijah and how God will do whatever it takes to reach out to us and to give us hope. Um, I remember years ago, I had this happen to me where I showed up at a, a dear uh, brother in Christ, showed up at his house, and he had a pad of paper, and he said, I want you to come sit at this table. And his wife came and sat down. He said, uh, we're going to write out my funeral right now. And I'm like, seriously? And he goes, absolutely. We're going to write out. I've already picked out the love letters that I wrote my wife, and she's done it. And they had the whole service lined up. He said, listen, I know where I'm going, so let's get this done. Well, this is a very similar thing. A, a minister showed up, and this sweet old lady was sitting there, and, a, and the minister said, uh, I came here to pray with you, and she said, well, I haven't told anybody. I've tried to kind of keep it a secret, but I need to let you know uh, that the report came back, the cancer spreading, and uh, I really only have weeks to live. But I have a favor. Um, I want you to bury me with my Bible in one hand, and I want you to bury me with a fork from the church in my other hand. And he's like, a fork? And she said, yeah. It's interesting, I love the little church I go to, and I love potlucks. Anybody here love potlucks? They don't have them like they used to. Am I right about that? Okay. She said, I love our church potlucks, but you know what I love more than anything at the potluck? Towards the end, somebody will always say, now keep your forks. And I love to keep my fork because I know what's coming. That dessert is coming, and I mean, I love so much of the dessert. I love the the dessert so much, I want to keep that fork. He said, so why do you want a fork in your casket? And she goes, because I want everybody to know that the best is yet to come. Today, everybody here, you get a fork. Uh, when you head out to the Welcome Center, uh, just as a reminder of what we've done this first year, but more than anything, that the best is yet to come. That no matter what you're going through, 
there's a gentle voice and it says time and time again, I know right now this seems so hard, but I want you to know the best is yet to come. The best is always yet to come because that's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us every Sunday, we have an opportunity we call an invitation. And it's just simply to say that you want to take that first step towards Jesus Christ, that you want to surrender to him, that that's where the hope is at. For some of you, you may just need to pray. So we'll always have people available to pray with you because we honestly believe with all of our hearts that the best is yet to come. Let's stand. Let's sing.